At this time, I want to turn our attention now to God's Word. And uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And uh, if you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can uh, use one of our Bibles. You'll find them under one of the chairs in front of you. Ephesians, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Elelu had no interest in actually reading the Bible. He was a Muslim after all, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Still, he did figure out one way to put the Bible given to him by a Christian to good use. Its crackly, thin pages were perfect for rolling joints and cigarettes. Papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive, Richard said, so we would tear out pages from the Bibles and use them for rolling our own papers. On one occasion in 1978, Richard Alehu tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it in his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page of the Bible from his pocket and read these words from Psalm 34:8: Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, he could not get that verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who shared the gospel with him. One night alone in his room, Richard prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you like this verse says. And that same evening, he accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. Richard's Muslim family and community did not respond very well. At first they expressed concern. Then they displayed anger. Then he received death threats. Richard was the first convert in the community, and so it felt like a grave threat to everyone. Local mosque leaders denounced him on the mosque outdoor loudspeakers. His own father told him he would rather see him dead. He had to spend every night in a different missionary's house because of the danger. Richard left for another community in Nigeria to attend Bible school. Once that was completed, he returned to his home community to pastor a church of factory and government workers who had migrated there. The death threats then resumed at a rapid cliff, as well as acts of vandalism against his church building. The police looked the other way. Richard eventually moved to the United States to protect his wife and children and to gain more Bible training. I didn't know him at the time, but Richard and I were seminary classmates. It all started with a Bible verse on a wadded up piece of paper dug out of a pocket. So it begins a chapter from a book that I mentioned last week called Reverberation by Jonathan Lehman. And I felt that story was appropriate for us to begin because it highlights the effective nature of God's word when read, illuminated by God's spirit. And as we move forward here at our church with a plan for a refocused ministry for making disciples, we have said again and again and again that the key is found in the Word of God. Hearing it for ourselves and so being changed and speaking it to others that they might be changed as well. This is why we have characterized our emphasis as being a Bible reading movement. We want to provide as many opportunities as possible for you to be opening the book with people either for evangelism or for encouragement. And this morning we want to affirm what some of you know and tell you, maybe for some of you for the first time, what the ministry of the Word looks like. What, what, what is it we're calling you to do? We want to answer questions like, why is the Word of God so important? How do you bring it to people? What should the results look like? And this is what we want to do from First Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2 this morning. So as we begin, I invite you to follow along as I read, and we're going to begin reading at verse 2. 
We give thanks to God always, Paul writes, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also empowered in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we'd already been, we had already suffered and been treated shamefully at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning from these verses we want to see not only how Paul went about fulfilling the ministry of the word, but how he also set an example for the Thessalonians to follow and that they followed it. Uh, they didn't they weren't just receivers of his ministry, they learned from it and reproduced it themselves in their own lives. And like them, we are God's people and therefore we are called to be involved in word ministry as well. That is speaking God's word to others that they might be transformed by the living God. In the end we need to understand that it is prayerful preaching by parenting people that makes mature disciples. That's what we want to see this morning. Prayerful preaching by parenting people makes mature disciples. So uh, this is the first thing that we see. Word ministry requires prayerful preaching. Word ministry requires prayerful preaching. I said this in a previous week, but I want to make it clear again. Preaching doesn't just happen in a pulpit, at least the way that, that I'm defining it here. Certainly we can make some methodological distinctions between preaching and teaching, telling a story or having a conversation. Uh, we could do that. It might be helpful to do that in some cases. But for our purposes this morning, what I want us to understand when I say preaching, it is simply opening our mouths and telling people the Word of God and explaining to them what it means and what difference it makes for their life. In that sense, it is not just pastors who preach, but all Christians have a role in preaching God's word. But it needs to be prayerful preaching. Why? Because the example that Paul shows us of what preaching should look like is not something any of us can do on our own. 
It is something that God must be involved in. Therefore, we need to call out to him so that our preaching will be, as Paul shows us, both powerful and pure. And so uh, we, want, we need prayerful preaching. Uh, why? What kind of preaching are we praying for? It is powerful preaching. Powerful preaching. We see this in verse 5. Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now I've summarized verse 5 with the word powerful, but notice the more comprehensive description. First of all, the gospel came in word. That is, Paul is opening the scriptures and the truth that is there with words. He's actually talking to people. Uh, you know, when I was in college, there was a quote that became very popular and was very trendy. And people, you know, would, uh, you know, uh, have it wear it on T-shirts and say it to one another. And they just thought it was cool. And I think there was a Michael W. Smith song about it. And it was supposedly a quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that said, Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, I think we just liked it because it sounded deep. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody really even thought about what, 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 what it meant. Just, you know, we're in college. It's like, oh, that's, that's deep. You know, we like that, you know. The first problem is Francis never said that. Uh, nowhere in any of his writings, any of his sermons, and nothing that we have from church history that, does St. Francis say anything like that. In fact, it's highly unlikely because Francis was part of a monkish order that was specifically tasked with preaching the gospel. That, that's what they were known for was going out and preaching. And in fact, it was during the Fifth Crusade around 1215, that Francis pulled together a band of his, of his preachers, his close friends, and they trekked across Syria into Egypt to talk to the most powerful Muslim of the day, the Kamil Sultan of Egypt. Why? So he could preach the gospel of Christ to him in the hopes that he would be saved. Here is a man who understood the value of word ministry. That the gospel, as much as our lives should reflect our belief in it, we need more than just godly lives. We need someone to explain why we are living godly lives. That is, we need ourselves to open our mouths and preach the gospel. That's the second problem with the, the quote. Words are necessary for gospel ministry. You know, when Paul talks about uh, the existence of God being evident in Romans chapter 1, you notice the kinds of things that he says are self-evident. God's power, his creative work. The one thing he doesn't say is evident is his grace and his mercy and his love. Why is that? Because I can go and look at a Grand Canyon. I can stare at, um, you know, the moon and constellations and say, wow, man, God's got amazing, he's powerfully designed, he created all this. I know nothing of the gospel of Christ and the stars. I can't, I can't see that there. So there is enough evidence to condemn us because God exists, he is to be worshipped, and we say, nah, we don't believe in a God. We, we all came from monkeys or whatever it is. But we need someone to give us something that, builds on the foundation of accountability we have so that we can actually know how to be saved. We need someone to explain to us that though we are sinful by nature, deserving of God's wrath because of our rebellion and sin, God provided the solution to our problem through the sending of his son who died in our place on a cross and was raised back to life as king of all things. We, we, don't, we can't just live a good life. We can't just pay for a meal for somebody and think, well, they'll get it. No, they won't get it. We have to open our mouths and use words to preach the gospel. Words are important. Words are essential words, the very essence of word ministry. But they don't just go out by themselves. Notice what Paul says. He preached words with full conviction. What does that mean? It means he believed what he was saying. He wasn't just trying on a line. He wasn't just trying to, to, to earn money. He preached what he preached because he believed it was God's truth. 
Therefore, he had confidence in the effectiveness of his words. More importantly still, Paul's preaching was powerful because it came with the Holy Spirit. God himself was using the words of Paul, which contained the words of God in the gospel. It was the Spirit who energized Paul's preaching so that it was effective and produced results. It doesn't matter how articulate, how eloquent, how clever we are in our presentation. If God is not in it, nothing will come of it. Nothing will come of it. It is truth shared with conviction and reliance on the Holy Spirit that makes powerful preaching. And that's also why we have to pray. We need to pray that we not only know the truth to share it, but that we ourselves have been gripped by it. That we are convinced, not just intellectually this is true, but but in the very experience of our life, we feel in our bones, this is true. And I am confident that when I proclaim the gospel, God is going to act. And we pray and we ask him to act. We say, God, go ahead of me. Prepare that person's heart. Have the Spirit working to, to, to show them the error of their ways so when they hear the gospel, it will click and make sense and they will believe. Open their eyes, as you promised to do in Second Corinthians. Open blind eyes. Therefore, we need to pray that we will preach and that God will empower our words with His Spirit. Secondly, we need to pray because the example that we see and that we should follow is one of pure preaching pure preaching. In chapter 2, Paul says to the the Thessalonians, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul is speaking of his preaching ministry, the very ministry that brought the gospel to the city of Thessalonica and produced the church in that place. And he says, when I came with my band of preachers, it was with pure motives. He said, we'd already been mistreated in the previous city. Nevertheless, he came without fear, wanting the gospel to be made known. He did not let the difficulty and the struggle, even the suffering he had experienced to cause him to preach in a way that was without pure motive. Well, I don't want to get hurt, so I want to go real easy and real slow and real careful. No, he said that, that, that wasn't a factor. More than that, the determination in his preaching that was there did not come because he wanted fame or influence or money. He says there's nothing deceptive in terms of my motives. In fact, later he, he says, this is proved out of the fact we didn't take money from you. We'll talk about that later. His point, though, is we don't fear people. We love people and we fear God because he is the one to whom we are accountable at the end of the day. Now, loved ones, we need to pray for that kind of ministry because it is far too easy to not have it. It is far too easy to fear men. It is easy to want to make the sometimes hard words of Christ soft and inoffensive and more palatable. It is easy to want to be recognized for being a great soul winner. And so the gospel becomes tweaked to make it more easily believable. It is easy to want power and so be manipulative in what we say. But the example we have of effective apostolic word ministry requires pure preaching preaching that springs from pure motives. Therefore, we need to be praying that God would be at work in our hearts, that he would give us pure hearts and pure motives for what we are seeking to do. Effective word ministry requires prayerful preaching, but it also requires parenting people. 
requires parenting people. Word ministry requires parenting people. This is the second thing that we see from this text. Now, we just said words are important. In fact, I made the argument that words are essential. But Paul shows that words, though essential, also need to be accompanied with love. With love. Because words are going to people. People are different. People, people are distinct. People are sinful. People are quirky and clever and are so diverse and therefore if we are truly to love them we need to see them as inherently valuable and say what is the best way that i can bring this word to them and paul says um the what, what this looks like in my own ministry in my own approach and therefore in what you should do it can be seen through how parents relate to their children the first thing that we do is we need to parent with gentleness. We need to parent with gentleness. Paul says even though he could have asked for compensation for his work as an apostle, that was his right. And he talks about that in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, if you want to check that out later. He says, nevertheless, I didn't want to confuse the gospel with you, and I didn't want to burden you. I didn't want to show up and say, I'm an apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you that he is the one true God, but I need a place to sleep. Who wants to put me up for the night? People are thinking, you know, well, what's, what's that about? You know, we don't want anything to do with that. And so he says, I didn't do that. Instead, even though we just come from, from being beaten up, we just come on this long journey, we immediately start supporting ourselves. We start working day and night toiling. Paul was a tent maker. He knew how to cut the canvas straight and, and stitch it up and sell it in the marketplace to support his own ministry. And he says, we did that because we wanted to be gentle among you. We didn't want to burden you. We wanted to make sure that you understood the compassion of God to the gospel and not just that we were needy. And so what does he say? He says, verse 8, excuse me, verse 7, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So we were gentle among you. Being affectionately desirous of you, verse 9, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but our very selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul cared for them before he even cared for himself. There is a great deal of pastoral wisdom in how he related to the Thessalonians. And he makes an amazing statement that he was gentle with them as like a nursing mother. Just think about that. I mean, is there, is there any more tender a picture of loving care than a mother feeding her child? He's saying, we didn't want to exploit you. We didn't want to just plow through and say, well, we took Thessalonica off our checklist and now we're moving on. He says he's gentle with them. I can imagine he is patient with them as he teaches them. And some of them are slow to hear, slow to understand. Their heels are dug in because of their pagan idolatry. And yet he is selfless in sharing his life with them. Nevertheless, that gentleness does not preclude a certain discipline either. And this is what he says. He parented with gentleness, but he also, secondly, he parents with discipline. He parents with discipline. Verse 9, you are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, Paul isn't saying that men or fathers aren't gentle or shouldn't be gentle. After all, he just said he was gentle. 
So that doesn't, that, that doesn't work. But what he is saying is, just as husbands and wives, mothers and fathers are meant to complement one another, so also his ministry embodied both of those complementary uh, uh, characteristics. Furthermore, he is pointing to, the, to the, the common role of the father in that culture to bear the responsibility for moral teaching in the home. In Roman society, it was the father who taught ethics. Yes, they were lived out, in theory, by both parents. They practiced what they preached would be the ideal. But it was the father who took the initiative in saying, this is how you live. This is right. This is wrong. Make sure you do what is right. First and foremost, that you can be a good and, and, and sufficient heir for my name and the family. We don't want you to embarrass us. But also because if you learn how to live well in the world, you will do well in the world. There was very much a, a pragmatic sense about it. And Paul is saying uh, that is important for fathers to do, even in a secular sense. Uh, I have had friends, and I have seen over the years, several parents who are more concerned to be friends with their kids than they are to be parents with their kids. And, and, and there is a desire to, to go light, to go easy, to make excuses for not holding them accountable, especially as they grow, to, to, to be firm and saying, this is wrong and you're not going to act this way. Specifically as Christians, this is not the way God wants you to behave. And the result is, instead of a good relationship, which is what they're hoping for, there is a very bad relationship between those parents. Because ultimately the kids don't respect them. They weren't taught right and wrong. They weren't taught to honor authority. If a, if, a, if a child cannot be taught to honor parents, they will never honor God. This is the way that God has designed things for families and for discipleship. And Paul says, it's the same way with me. He says, yes, I was gentle among you. Yes, I was patient with you. But that did not eliminate my need to come and to show you discipline as well. To teach you right from wrong, to teach you godliness, to teach you what it means to live in light of the gospel, to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Therefore, we exhorted, we encouraged, we charged you to not walk in a manner worthy of God. So Paul says that prayerful preaching is required. Prayerful in the sense that we are relying on God in full confidence in his word that he would make it known and open people's eyes. But as we apply that, there is a tenderness, there is a care there's a compassion as we seek to parent people just as we would parent children. And what is that meant to produce? It is meant to produce mature disciples. That's the final thing that we see. Word ministry produces mature disciples. The whole point that Paul is making is not just about what his ministry looked like among the Thessalonians, but the response to that ministry, which was evident in their lives. The first thing that we see is that they had mature character. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have read the New Testament at all, three words should have just popped out like blinking blue lights to you there. Faith, hope, and love. Those things appear all over the place in the New Testament, but especially in Paul's letters. That is kind of the, the triad of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love. And not just generic faith. Not, not you know, uh, years ago, uh, you know, uh, Prince Charles in England was asked about the possibility that he might be the future monarch and, uh, of England. And one of the things he said was he would change his, the, the title of the English monarch from defender of the faith, the Christian faith, 
to defender of faith. No article. Any faith. doesn't matter. I will defend it. Well, that's what many people want to be like today. It doesn't matter what faith is as long as you have faith in something. It might be yourself. Like it's often yourself. You've got to believe in yourself. Well, I look at myself in the mirror and say, there's not much to believe in here. I need something else to build my life upon than this. I need, I need a strong, big God who is sovereign over everything and who knows how to forgive sinners because I am a sinner in need of deep forgiveness. Therefore, I put my faith in Christ. And so did the Thessalonians. So did the Thessalonians. That work of faith in Christ brought about a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope. In other words... They had faith in the gospel message that Christ saves sinners that produced in them a a life of working for God driven by love. And it was evident that even in the midst of difficulty, they were not shaken in their confident hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached a spirit-empowered gospel message. He parented the Thessalonians and God opened their eyes in faith and he began transforming their lives. In fact, in verses, uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, Those around you in the surrounding areas, they report con- concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of come. That is the very essence of Christian character. People turning away from the idols they serve in order to serve the one true and living God. In fact, that is what marks us out uh, from, from everyone else as, as Christians, as God's people. In fact, I, I would just challenge you this morning. I would ask yourself, is that how you live your life? The Bible is clear that when, when we perhaps turn for some pretty big idols in our life, Maybe, maybe it's a false religion, a lot like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, or I would even go so far as to say Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. I mean, so many other cultish things that claim to be Christian and aren't. When we turn away perhaps from that and see, no, no, Jesus Christ is who he says he is in the Bible, God in the flesh who atoned for sins. That's great, but get, you know what? Those big idols are just the beginning. I mean, we spent weeks in Jonah months ago showing anything can be an idol in our life. Anything. Any, anything that we treasure more than God and think, I could not live without this, ultimately is an idol. Because God says he is all that we need. Doesn't mean that our life would be easy. Doesn't mean that it would be pain-free. But if we have him, then we have everything that is sufficient for life. And part of the mark of the Christian, as Martin Luther has said, is a life of repentance. It's a life of constantly trying to uproot the idols in our hearts so that we might turn away from them and towards the living God. What makes this difficult is another reformer, Calvin, said, our heart is like a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly taking what God has made good and saying, that's not just good, that's great, that is ultimate, that is my God. Well, it's not. At least it shouldn't be. And so the mark of the Christian is one who is always identifying, oh, this has become an idol in my life, and turning away to serve the living God. Turning away to serve the living God. And if that is not the consistent pattern of your life, then one of two things has happened. Either you have, you have become trapped in a fog of sin that has blinded you to the reality of the cross, and serious repentance is required. Or you've never come to a place in your life 
where you have truly turned away from your sin, from trying to live the way that you want to live and said, God, I see it is Christ and him alone in which I can be saved. It's not what I do. It's not how good I am. Uh, Help me to, to die to myself and put faith in your son that I might have life with you. I might be forgiven of my sins. I might live forever in right relationship with you in the new heaven and the new earth. Today, turn away from your idols and trust in the living and true God. The transformation didn't end with the Thessalonians themselves. Paul did not just turn them away from idols toward Christ, but Paul also shows that his ministry produced within them a mature ministry. They had mature character, and that led to mature ministry. See, the Thessalonians, as we said earlier, didn't just benefit from Paul's word ministry. They followed his example and did the same. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. I know we have a difficult time, but think about what he's saying. In the midst of life affliction... They nevertheless received the word with joy. If I could just add comment, I would say it's because they realized that what they heard, the reality and the truth that was expressed in the word, was more valuable than a pain-free life. They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything about you. They sat under the instruction, under the care and the parenting, the preaching of Paul, and they said, this is great. We've benefited from this. Now we need to go out and do this too. And notice he's not just talking about it. He doesn't say that the pastors of the Thessalonian church, the Thessalonians, as a church, from the pulpit to the pew, as it were, were all engaged in this word ministry. I recently heard an Aussie pastor talk about a situation that involved Christians from Afghanistan. These Afghan Christians were refugees who had suffered persecution for their faith and displacement because of the violence that was taking place in their country. They wound up in India and immediately, immediately they started evangelizing right on the streets. And this came at the cost of, this was in, in the north of India where uh, um, Islam is strong and apparently they were receiving death, threat, death threats from uh, from the, the Muslims there. And one of the missionaries had, had found out about these guys and hooked up with them and was trying to work with them and help them. And, and he was completely astonished. I mean, these guys, are, these, guys, these Afghans are not, again, they're not, they're not professionals, as it were. They're just average Christians. And this guy has had pieces of paper printed up with his name on it and his home address saying, if you're interested in studying the Bible, learning about Jesus here, come to my house. And he's saying, are you nuts? You have received death threats. Just put your email address on there. That's sufficient. The point was, here are these people that are facing death. They've been displaced. They're practically homeless. They're foreign refugees. None of that matters. They just get on the business of being a Christian, of engaging in word Ministry, true word ministry, true discipleship will not just result in Christians looking good on the outside. It will result in Christians who engage in word ministry themselves. They will be producing out of their own life what someone else has invested in them. The work that they have benefited from, they will in turn share with others. All right, so what does this mean practically for us? 
What should we be doing today and next Tuesday and a month from now? At least two things. At least two things. You need to know that list was a lot longer, and I just said we'll, 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 we'll give the rest of them with next week's message. So here we go. Two things. First of all, we will be engaged in word ministry. I mean, that seems like it's kind of a no-brainer, but uh, th- there is still often this, this mindset that there, there is kind of this, this odd, uh, odd holy space between uh, this sacred desk and those chairs. And there are only certain things that I can do and that you can't do. Well, that, that line may be a lot thinner than what you think. In fact, writing about, against that view, Martin Luther said, quote, The ministry of the word belongs to all. To bind and to loose clearly is nothing else than to proclaim and to apply the gospel. The keys of the kingdom are an exercise of the ministry of the word and belong to all Christians. You know, some in his days, he's making reference to where Jesus says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on and loose on earth, we bind and loose in heaven. And people say, oh, you know, Peter's, you know, the special guy. Now he's the pope and only the church and the priest. And Luther said, no, 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 no. You're making too much of that. It is simply the sharing of the gospel that is the keys of the kingdom. That is where the binding and loosing takes place of Satan and sinners. Satan bound in his work of blinding sinners and Satan's being freed from that work that they might trust in Jesus. See, where did he get that from? All over the New Testament. But he always kept coming back to 1 Peter 2.9. Speaking again to every Christian, Peter writes, You are a chosen race. A, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is he saying? He's saying every Christian is called to the privilege of word ministry, of opening their mouth and declaring the glories of God through the gospel of Christ. It's not just for men who stand on this pulpit or Sunday school teachers. All of us are called to be sharing truth from God's word in order to make disciples, either bringing lost people into the faith for the first time or in nurturing and encouraging and maturing those that already have a saving knowledge of God. And we want our time together on Sunday mornings to set the tone for that word ministry, but we don't want it to stop there. I mean, just just imagine you're, you're you know you're out on this uh, serene lake, as it were, and, and maybe you know if you're a kid, you wanna you wanna try and skip a stone or something, or you wanna shop, put one of those real big ones in, and just see the as big a splash you can get, or maybe you wanna go fishing, but the second you plop something in there, what happens? We all know those ripples go out, and if and if there's nothing else there, they just kind of go out. But if you've got a big rock in the middle of the lake, or you've got a fallen tree or something, you know those ripples bounce off and they start going back everywhere. And, and that's what we want to be the effect of our time gathered together when we go out, that the word doesn't stop with us, but rather ignites in us. One author says, the evangelist or the preacher opens his mouth and utters a word, God's word. But the word doesn't sound just once. It echoes or reverberates. It reverberates through the church's music and prayers. It reverberates through conversations between elders and members, members and guests, older Christians and younger ones. God's words bounce around the life of the church like the metal ball in a pinball machine. But the reverberating word shouldn't stop there. The church building doors should open and God's words should echo out the doors, down the street, into members' homes and workplaces. The reverberations of sound that began in the pulpit should eventually be bouncing off the walls in dining rooms, kitchens, children's bedrooms, off gymnasiums walls, cubicle dividers, and the insides of city bus windows through emails, text messages, and internet pages. I, 
I read that and I say, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. But part of what that means is you've got to come ready for that. You've got, you got to come with the settings in your, in your brain, your soul worked out so that you say, I'm not just sitting here to be fed. I am here to feed that I may feed others. I'm here to, to learn and absorb and be transformed that I might be the agent by which that occurs in others. This is why we keep telling you, yes, we, we, we delight and think it's important for us to gather every week together as God's people. But we also think it's important that we scatter. Whether it's in the small groups or one-to-one Bible reading. I just heard the, uh, this, this week about three guys that are getting together for Bible study at work through Mark's Gospel. That's what I'm talking about. We want to provide you and encourage you to take as many opportunities as possible to be engaged in reading the Bible with others so that you can engage in word ministry. The second thing is this. We will take a long view of ministry. We will take a long view of, the, of ministry. This is, to be honest, the toughest part, or has been historically for me. I have to tell you that there have been seasons of life for me as a pastor that have been, uh, frankly, depressing. Uh, I, I felt like I have been giving it all I've got and nothing is happening. And the first questions that enter my mind are, what am I doing wrong? Is there sin in my life that's hindering the work? Is there sin in the life of the people that's hindering the work? I'm ringing the bell and nobody's hearing it. I, as a matter of fact, there's not even a string attached, it seems like. And the reason why that is, now some of those questions are good to ask. It's not that those are not always bad questions, but they might, shouldn't be the first questions we ask except for the fact that we have been so programmed for instantaneous results. The people that have been held up as Christian heroes, especially in our circles, are those that get up, preach a sermon, give an invitation, and thousands come to the front. What does that say? Word ministry has immediate effects. And sometimes it does, but usually it doesn't. Have you ever wondered why almost every metaphor in the Bible for growth is is rooted in agriculture? Yes, they lived in an agrarian society, that's what they knew. But more than that, I think it's God is saying people are like plants. You know, I, you know, we don't drop you know, seeds in the dirt, throw some water in there, and come back out the next night and have orange trees. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You put that seed in, and you water it, and you water it, and you water it, and you water it, and then a shoot pops up. And you're like, yay for the shoot. And, and, and then you're like, you know, trying to keep, you know, the rabbit from coming and, and chewing on it and everything else. And you cultivate it. And then because the winds blow a certain way, it's starting to lean. And you don't want that. So you post a stake in it. And you tie it up so it goes straight up. And then it actually matures and becomes self-sustaining. But it's still not, it's still not producing fruit. It's still not budding. It still needs to grow more. And so you cultivate it. You trim back. And then finally, you get these nice, big, juicy oranges. What? It might take five years. People are like that. People are like that. Sometimes, sometimes God has it just comes down and is so powerful. There is immediate and evident change, and we thank God for that. But more than likely, it is tiny course corrections over the course of many weeks, many months, many years before suddenly we begin to see good, big, juicy, godly fruit that the Spirit is working in people's lives. And so we've got to be, we've got to be of the conviction that people need parenting not just pep talks it's not enough just to come in and and spiritually uh bop somebody on the shoulder and say it's going to be all right and move on no life with others is required sometimes even through hard seasons but we take the long view of ministry and resist the temptation to keep trying something new all the time thinking we're just not doing something right now what is to be done biblically is to be opening our mouths 
sharing God's word, prayerfully asking God's spirit to bear fruit. And we do that tenderly. We do that with discipline. We do it in a way like a parent would raise their children. In the end, all of us are called to be a people of the book. Praying for God to come down and bless our words as we read and explain His word so that lives will be changed by the truth of the gospel. That process of gospel growth begins when we ourselves are ready and willing to sit under the word, whether here or at home or in groups, and be changed by it, turning from our own idols to serve the living God. May that be true of us today. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the encouragement and the correction that it brings. God, we pray that we would hear it well, not just today, but every time that we come to your word, God, even when we feel as if it's boring and we're just not interested in reading your word that day, help us to see that is a spiritual problem. It is not a problem with you or your word that is a problem with us. And God, may we push through that knowing it is in those times it is precisely the word that we need. God, make us receptive to it. Give us, give us the kind of tasting and seeing of you in your word that we heard about earlier and causes us to want to come back to you again and again and again. Both that we might be changed and that we might be equipped to take that same change, life-changing word to others as well. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.